and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are catching up a little bit. I was out last week. Apologies for skipping that episode, but frankly, we did not miss much. Um, it is deep off-season in professional cycling, so it is fine to take a little bit of a break this time of year. So this week, instead of diving deep into one of the topics I've been writing about, I'll just touch on a few things that have happened over the past days, like Wout Van Aert potentially being suspended by the UCI, EF firing, rehiring, firing riders again, um, as well as their, uh, I guess, rumored, it, it reported signing of Mark Boudin. I think that's pretty much a done deal, even though it hasn't been cleared with UCI. Uh, Mike Wood saying the Peloton is faster or more competitive now than it used to be. And uh, I'm going to slide in an interview I did with Richard Pestes of Pez Cycling for his new YouTube show, uh, the Pez Cycling YouTube show. So I will put the audio file of that in at the end of this um, short, short podcast. So feel free to stick around and listen to that. And there'll be a link in the show notes to the YouTube interview. If you want to see my poorly lit face in my recording studio. Um, that will be available. First, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the Beyond the Peloton newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly edition. If you like the podcast, that is a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. There's a paid edition. It's daily during Grand Tours. It covers every major race. Trice weekly in the off-season. We do some deep, deep, deep dives into everything pro cycling data and, and rumors. Starting to get into some rumors on Friday, Rumor Friday. Um, you definitely don't want to miss that. You also get discounts on select brands like Stages Cycling, Curave Switzerland, FastCat Coaching. I think all of those companies are having Black Friday sales. I will be posting the links to those discounts in future newsletters, so keep an eye out for that. So back to the cycling. Wow, Van Art. Uh, the story came out. I, no one remembers this. This is like ancient history at this point. It's annoying. We even have to still deal with this, but um, if you don't remember, he was on the Verandas Williams Creelan. It was like a cyclocross team and a pro Conti or Conti road team. Um, he left it in 2018 to go over to Yumbo Visma as his um, as he was wanting to get in more into road cycling, and his star was rising in that discipline. And he had already won three cyclocross world championships, so it's kind of a natural fit. Uh, there was never an agreement for him to leave. I don't, I don't know what happened, but it seems a bit kind of like an unnecessarily contentious divorce where um, I guess he just broke his contract. Uh, they took him to court. He had to pay him $700,000, which I assume was the remainder of the contract. And that seems totally fair. If you want to leave a contract early, um, I, you should have to, there should be a buyout clause that you're acquiring team pays, or you should personally have to pay that if there's no buyout clause. Um, you should just have to pay them the rest of the contract. That makes total sense to me. And I think that is kind of standard practice. That's what happens a lot. Like if um, Egan Bernal wants to leave Ineos, um, I'm pretty sure he can just pay them the rest of his contract and leave. Um, employment laws in Europe are so much in the favor of the of the employee versus the employer. I have to imagine that's an option. So I'm, so I'm surprised that that didn't settle it. Um, Nick Noyens, the owner of that team, has like taken him to court repeatedly. The the long of this, the short of this very boring long story is that um, now the UCI is potentially going to punish Van Aert. I don't know if that's in the form of another financial penalty or um, what is. I've seen, seen rumors of this morning is that he's going to be suspended from racing for some amount of time. I think this is 
This seems crazy to me. I, I cannot imagine this actually going through. It's not that unusual for writers to leave contracts early. If you've been getting the weekly transfer analysis emails for premium subscribers, it's happened multiple times this offseason already. DSM lost Tej Manute mid-contract. Danny Martinez and Mike Woods left EF last year in the middle of their contracts. Um, not, not a totally unusual thing. I, I assume there's some sort of agreement or monetary compensation in place for those scenarios, which is why they haven't been as contentious. But I, yeah, I'm confused why this is even still an issue. Um, the reason I'm talking about it is because of the threat of a racing ban. But I, I, my prediction here is that's not happening. There's no way he's missing significant racing because of this stupid, stupid contract breach from 2018. I could see some sort of ban for, you know, it's like the Christian Vandeveld special when they suspended him six months for doping in the middle of the offseason. I could see him getting suspended for like the months of December and January or like January and February where... You know, February, he could miss a few races, but he's not missing anything significant. Um, I think that's what they're going to cook up if they do any suspension at all, which I highly, highly doubt. I mean, he's one of the most marketable riders in the sport. The UCI is a very silly bureaucracy, very poorly run, incredibly poorly run. Uh, maybe I'll have Ian Trelor from Cycling Tips come on to talk about that sometime. He is like the expert in the corrupt bureaucrats that run the UCI. Um, but they do know that he is extremely marketable and probably would not suspend him for any, any significant race. Kind of an interesting thought experiment that if let's say to totally like blue sky thinking here, what if he got suspended for an entire season because of this? Um, I, you know, that could, the UCI isn't going to do that for a number of reasons, but one would be that it could incentivize races to, to just basically divorce the UCI. Like the Tour de France could say, well, we, we don't care about the UCI, like, okay, you're the governing body of the sport. We're bigger than you. We're just going to be the Tour de France and we don't need you to sanction us. And Wout Van Aert's coming to our race. Um, that, that's been a thing that has been threatened in the past. It has never really gone through. And the UCI probably knows that by suspending a major, major star for a big, big race, they would be hurtling themselves towards probably in a showdown just like that. Because while they have some leverage in that situation, they don't really have a lot. Sure, sure, it's easier for ASO and the Tour to be part of the UCI calendar um, if it's no real skin off their back. But you know, if the UCI you know uh, messes with their money, let's say the little bit more uh, the uh, more family friendly version of that phrase, then yeah, ASO is just going to say, "Well, screw you. Uh, we're our own thing now. We don't care about you." So that, that's just something to keep in mind in here, that the UCI does not want to give races any more incentive to break away from their kind of, a, let's just say, BS structure. Uh, I, could, I could do an entire podcast series on how the UCI needs to be um, reformed and minimized. Like a real professional league should be running the sport instead of just a few race organizers with some bureaucrats in Switzerland. But on another topic, Team EF. What the hell's going on over there? They fire uh, Lawson Craddock and Sergio Higuita, two very popular riders who are leaving the team at the end of the year, uh, into December. Um, these guys were riding. The, kind of the sad thing is Sergio Higuita was in this amazing video. Him and Danny Martinez were like basically sprinting up a mountain in Colombia, um, just blowing by. It was like hundreds of kind of like enthusiast riders uh, in an event, and these guys were blowing by them so fast. It's actually a great video showing. 
uh, people how much faster these World Tour riders are, specifically World Tour top-level climbers. Um, you cannot keep up with them. Don't think you can. Watch the video if you, if you need proof. But like 24 hours after this video comes out, um, EF just, I don't know why the, the heck they did this, noticed that he was riding his uh, specialized tarmac, which Bora is riding next year. Um, and this is common. A lot of riders, they will get their team bike for the team they're joining once racing is over. And they'll just start getting that dialed in before the season starts because it's not happening this year because of COVID. But usually, you know, you'll get World Tour races in January um, down in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's, it's important to get that bike dialed in as quickly as you can. Teams know this happens. No one enforces it because what's the upside here? Um, EF really comes out strong and just fires him, ends his contract. And then same thing, Los Incratic is at a Melojani's event. I believe it was Melojani's. In Austin, riding his Cannondale because he's going to Bike Exchange next year, and they fire him on the spot. Uh, I I really have no idea why they do this. It's really all just negative publicity. EF is sometimes the king of publicity, and then sometimes um, like their, their their petty kind of personality battles uh, poison all of that. Um, they ended up rescinding this, which makes it makes even less sense about what's going on here. Like, why go through the trouble of ending their contracts? And taking all that heat when you just rescind it like a day later. Um, one of my theories here was that they're just trying to save money. Um, I, I think this could indicate that they're just looking for any way to save money because that would save them basically four months of contract payments to to each of those riders. Um, I thought Higita would be on more money than he's on. You know, he, he's a very good writer. Uh, Lantern Rouge, the cycling YouTuber, pointed out to me on Twitter though that he's still on his rookie deal or his Neo Pro deal. So it is possible, like, I don't know, maybe he's making, I don't know, 100,000 euros a year, 150,000 euros a year. If that's true, um, his move to Bora makes a lot more sense. That's way too little money for a writer of his talents. But still, I mean, you know, I, I can't really think of any other reason they would do this. Potentially, Cannondale came down on them. Um, he's like, shit runs downhill. Potentially, Cannondale says you have to punish these guys. They're embarrassing us by not riding the team bikes. And EF was in a corner and did what they had to do. Um, maybe that's the case, but I find the whole thing very strange and potentially um, telling us uh, if they're going to that lengths to save money, then things are not good over there. And I can't really think of why they would do this other than to save money. Uh, it's, it's like the most obvious, obvious reason out there because they knew they were going to take a huge PR hit over this. In no scenario was this going to go well for them. So um, just something to keep an eye on. And in the, in the same vein, I'm even more confused when it comes out they're signing Mark Padoon from Bahrain. My free piece last week was about um, Padoon potentially going to Ineos and if that makes sense. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes here. You can read that if you want. I didn't really think it made a lot of sense. That was the rumor last week though. I thought it was just posturing by his agent to get more money from Bahrain because he makes so much sense at Bahrain. You know, they have some money. He's kind of a weird rider because he's so talented. He has so much potential, but he rarely ever fulfills it. You know, he doesn't win very many races at all. Um, I think his two world tour races, two world tour wins ever in his career came at the Dauphiné this year. So it, it would be, he, he's definitely not a prolific winner. Um, you can't really count on him for results, so you need a team that can kind of carry a, a big salary and not demand results at the time. You know, that's kind of perfect for Bahrain. In, in theory, Ineos could. I mean, they have, uh, I guess I've, I've heard from pretty good sources that they have 20 guys on that team making over a million euros a year, so 
Um, sure. Like they could give you a bunch of money and stash you in the back room and like, what do they care? But that seemed odd. Like, well, you already have a roster of overpaid, slightly underachieving talents. Why would you just add more to that? Um, doesn't make a ton of sense. And it didn't make a ton of sense for him because you're just going to go to Enios and get warehoused because no one can get race starts at that team. I mean, Egan Bernal won the Tour de France in 2019. He can barely get a tour start anymore. He had a share leadership at the Vuelta. So uh, that seemed odd. Yeah, EF, this came out of left field to me because they, they're not a team with a lot of money. Um, they don't normally sign slightly sketchy riders like Padun. Um, there's not really any hard evidence against him. Just it looks weird that he's kind of a middle of the pack rider climber. And then suddenly he's like one of the best in the world, like overnight. And, and I literally mean overnight. You know, with that Dauphiné, he put in two of the best climbing performances on Saturday and Sunday. Um, Monday through Friday, he was a regular guy. You know, he didn't even win that Dauphiné. He wasn't even in competition for the overall title there. So how the heck did that happen? Like, why weren't you good in the time trial or any of the stages before that if you were the strongest rider in the race the whole time? Um, it definitely looks sketchy, um, which is weird that EF is signing them. They, they're a clean team. That's like their whole business proposition is that they're like squeaky clean. So strange that they would sign them. But then uh, another thing that's weird is if you just think about all these talents they've left, they've let walk, like Sergio Hugita, Danny Martinez, Mike Woods, they've all left because essentially EF didn't want to pay them. So why now? Why Mark Padun? Why not just pay Danny Martinez, who's better than Mark Padun? Or Sergio Higuita, who's probably better than Mark Padun? Keep Mike Woods, for Christ's sake. Like Mike Woods, is he, sure, he's on the downslope of his career, but he's going to get you a few results every year. Um, whole thing is, is very confusing to me. I don't quite understand what's going on over there at EF. This just feels a little bit, I should say a lot of bit, out of character. Um, I did not see it coming at all. Potentially, in their defense, I mean, just to present their side of the case, to be fair here, maybe they're thinking, hey, a, a talent like this comes around like once once every few years. We have a chance to jump on him. Let's do it. The, th the only thing I don't understand is, so he's not that young. He's 25. So it's not like you're getting a really young talent. But what happened with Bahrain? Like, like what happened there? Did they not want him? I can't imagine EF could have outbid what Bahrain would have paid him to come back if they wanted him. And remember, he put in that performance at the Dauphiné, they don't take him to the Tour de France. He's actually never started the Tour de France for Bahrain. Um, that's a little strange. I don't understand what happened there. Bahrain clearly doesn't trust him and, and is not, frankly, not probably not big fans of him if, you know, they're not really giving him a lot of opportunities. You know, maybe the reason they didn't bring him back is they thought this guy's so inconsistent. He has an inflated ego now that he um, had this Dauphiné, these Dauphiné performances. Um, we don't want to pay him a ton of money. If you look at Bahrain's roster, um, pretty, pretty good roster, kind of stacked roster. Um, they have Jack Hay kind of coming up as a GC rider, same with Gino Mater. And they think, you know, we don't want him crowding those Grand Tour rosters. They took him to the Vuelta. He didn't particularly impress. Um, I would not say that Vultix, that Volta showing probably didn't give a lot of confidence to the Bahrain team that he's going to fit in there long term. So if you just think about that, like why is this guy's team not trying to retain him? Um, that, that would put up a lot of red flags for me. Um, but potentially EF thinks, you know, we got to throw a Hail Mary here. We don't really have any top-tier climbers or GC riders. They have Rigoberto Oran, who was pretty good for 2.5 weeks of the tour last year, but he just does not have, you know, he fell apart at the end of that tour. 
he just does not have what it takes to keep up with the modern Peloton. So uh, kind of an interesting, interesting little decision over there. Um, as, uh, speaking of the modern Peloton, Mike Woods came out this week and said, it's just more competitive than it used to be. I don't know if that's like a veiled doping thing. Just it, it, you always hear stuff like that. Um, and it's people insinuating there's a lot of doping in the Peloton. But what this normally is, is old guys being like, wow, I am slow now. I don't understand what's happened. And as someone around Mike, Mike Wood's age, I can tell you that's exactly what I think a lot of the times. I'm like, wow, how did people get so fast? And it's like, no, no, no. You are just getting slower. Uh, this, is, this is called aging. So that would be my guess. But I'm going to dig into this a little bit and try to find out if, if, the, if it really is getting harder. Um, you know, are people more talented than they used to be? Like, what exactly is going on here? It certainly seems like the depth of talent, you know, kind of with this youth wave has gotten better. Um, you look at riders who were like winning Grand Tours just a few years ago. Um, someone like, you know, Tom Dumoulin comes to mind. And Dumoulin was like a machine back in the day. And it doesn't seem like he's necessarily gotten any slower. But, you know, someone who can time trial like that and climb the way he does, um, that, that really stood out. Uh, kind of like Chris Froome. And then it just, they seem somewhat, you know, if they were even doing their exact performances from their prime, you know, they, they would be struggling to keep up with Tadej Bogacar and Primus Roglic. So um, th th there's definitely something to be said for the racing getting more competitive. Um, you do have to remember that just because speeds are getting higher doesn't mean it's any harder. You know, that could just be in a, a general advancing of like aerodynamic foils on bikes or the shapes of the, the tubes getting more aerodynamic, making the bikes faster, helmets, um, positioning, clothing, making everyone just go faster. But that's just speed inflation. That's not actual, like, you know, that doesn't mean it's actually, actually harder. So um, it's going to be actually kind of difficult to dig into this, but, but I'll give it a shot. And I should have a post coming out about that in the next few weeks. All right, well, let's get into the interview, uh, my Pez Cycling interview with Richard now. Welcome, Pez fans, to what may become the first of many, the inaugural Pez show, for lack of a better name. But joining me today in studio via Zoom, live from Denver, Colorado? Uh, Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. Is Spencer Martin, the author and owner of Beyond the Peloton, which is a fantastic newsletter that takes you way deeper inside the strategy and potential outcomes and what happened on the road of professional road racing and road cycling. Spencer, thanks for joining us, man. I've been reading your newsletter for a while. Um, I was so happy when you agreed to let us uh, use some of your stuff as content and share it with our Pez readers. Welcome to, uh, to the broadcast. Thanks for coming in for a chit chat. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Richard. I've, um, I've been a big fan of Pez for a while and I'm flattered that you wanted me to be part of the show. All right. Well, you know, like I always say, us, us the little guys, we got to stick together, right? Yeah, yeah, we do. All right. So what are, you know, it's not like we're just here to yip yap about nothing, even though essentially that's what we were just joking about a couple of minutes ago. Both of us have um, some similar stories in that we are, you know, relatively small players in the vast landscape of road cycling. Um, we both got here somehow. And I think, you know, I I've had this question posed to me many times over the last almost 20 years of publishing Pez. And that was, how did you get started? And so when I talk to people who are doing similar stuff to what we're doing and, and making a dent in the media landscape, I'm always really interested in that backstory and that background. So Spencer, can you tell us a little bit about 
you know, beyond the Peloton, your sort of philosophy, your reason for being, how you got here and how you got started? Yeah, no, I, I would love to talk about that. I'll keep it brief because um, I could go on for, for hours about this. But long story short, I, I moved to Maui to try to become a professional cyclist. Um, was, you know, mixed, mixed success rose to, you know, like a, a national elite level, um, had a few bad crashes, washed out of that, was working a regular desk job at a you know, pretty boring company. If I tr- sort of explain it, you'd, you'd probably fall asleep. But um, while I was doing that, my, um, I would get up early every morning and watch cycling races, the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia. And then I would spend all day just kind of like secretly reading about what happened in the race and listening to every podcast I could listen to at my desk, just made it look like I was on phone calls. Um, and even I would email like Vela News articles to myself um, so I could read and it looked like I was reading an email, but I was really just reading about the races from the day. And um, I, 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 it's a good thing <laughs> you were reading cycling material. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And I would, and yeah, I was just kind of after a while of like watching the races, I, I would think, Matt, I would love to just be talking about this all the time, as opposed to going into meetings. And, you know, I would like, if I had to miss the end of a stage because of a meeting, I would just be like, what am I doing? This is, this is the worst. Um, and I started a site called beyond the Peloton blog.com. And I, I would just kind of try to treat the sport with the same, you know, analytical mind and, and strategy that, you know, maybe a Zach Lowe or a Nate Duncan does with basketball. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed it and I, I knew I wanted to do it full time. So eventually I left that job and, and started the newsletter beyond the Peloton um, com, And now I do daily coverage for pretty much every major race. So how did you get this idea to be the guy doing, doing a newsletter, just, you know, it's like, you're, you're not working for a, a, one of the, the cycling sites or a magazine. You're just a guy who's now got access to everything on the internet. And, you know, it's like kind of a, it takes a certain, um, to a certain amount of <laughs> bravery, stupidity, direction and some lack of direction. Cause I've done this myself to go to the edge of the cliff and jump off the cliff and, you know, not only do you hope the parachute may or may not open you, sometimes you don't even know if you're wearing a parachute. So how did you like come up with this idea? You know what I'm going to do, I'm going to be the guy doing a newsletter. <laughs> that's a, yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's an insane thing to do. I mean, even the thought of why would anyone need to hear my thoughts on, on a race? Like that's, you know, it's, I guess it is somewhat narcissistic and insane, but you know, it really was bred of just from, I used to want to be like a writer at like Velo News. Like that was my goal, you know, just send me to the tour and I'll write pieces about it, you know, but over time I realized, you know, as a consumer, I was like, I'm not really getting the content I want. Um, I'm not, it's not digging deep enough for me. So I feel you know, that was, brother. I feel that <laughs> <laughs> it was almost over time, just frustration of just like, God, I'm not quite seeing what I'm seeing from, from really astute analysts and other sports. And um, I'm going to do it because I'm driving my wife crazy, ranting and raving around the house after the races. So she was a big part of it. Like you got to get these thoughts out there because you're driving everyone insane at home. So um, I I didn't set out to do this, but to me, the least path, the least resistance was just, you know, take the emails I'd collected on the website and start a newsletter. Yeah. 
You know what? If listen, if people aren't listening to you at home, you have to find a new audience. I learned that a long time ago, <laughs> but I, I love, I love what you said, your comment there about not being satisfied with the uh, the coverage that was there. You weren't seeing the stuff that you wanted to watch because that um, is exactly what I went through. And that's what I thought when I started Pez in like 2002. And, you know, similar to, to you, I was like, I, I had been reading um, the sites of the time, Velo News, Cycling News. Uh, There's a couple others out there. And there was lots of race focus, very, a bit of technical stuff. Some, you know, the magazines were covering a bit of gear and stuff, but there, I'd been to the tour, I'd been to the Giro and I knew how much fun it was to be at those races. But when I came back here, I could not read or see any coverage that felt like I was at the race. And so my kind of reason was, you know what, the coverage I want to see is what's it like to be there? just hanging around in the start village or uh, riding your bike on the course, doing one of the climbs, hanging out with the fans, uh, having lunch in a village, all that stuff that makes up a day in the life of a fan. Nobody was covering that at all. And so I was like, you know what, that's, that's the stuff I would like to be, to be doing and, and just going over there and start writing stories about what we saw. And that's what, that's exactly what we did. And we sort of launched roadside reporting as we called it. And of course now with Facebook and social media and stuff, every kid with a, an iPhone and a Wi-Fi connection is also doing some version of the same, <laughs> the same thing. But, but we were the, I contend we were the first guys to bring it to a large scale. <laughs> yeah, it was groundbreaking stuff. And I remember those inter- those like, you know, so-and-so gets pezzed and it would be these super personal <laughs> interviews that people wouldn't, you wouldn't get other places. Exactly. I know. Remember this is, well, listen, don't look now, but Spencer Martin, you're getting pezzed. Oh no. <laughs> you're getting, <laughs> this is a Pez exclusive interview <laughs> right here, right now. I know. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, I mean, our, for our thing was, I came up with this little idea. Uh, our tagline would be what's cool in road cycling it used to be what's cool in pro cycling. But then as pro cycling, the, the kind of became less popular, I decided to just expand pivot a little bit. And, you know, part of the, the mentality was we're just going to tell readers that if you are looking for something cool in road cycling, yeah, this is the place you're going to find it. And also if, if we're talking about it, then we have deemed it to be cool enough for you as a discerning reader to check out. So it was, you know, a bit of this marketing BS, I suppose, but nevertheless, you got to stake your, put your stake in the sand somewhere. Yeah. 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 For something. Yeah. I don't know. What do you stand for? What does beyond the Peloton stand for? I don't know if we were going to come up with a, what your slogan. I'd say it would be, you know, I, I got to find a slogan, maybe like treating pro cycling with the respect it deserves, where I felt like a lot of the analysis was more, it was more almost, it was very biased. You read like, especially English language coverage. And I, I felt like the story they were telling and the facts on the road were not aligning. Um, and I don't know if I just noticed that more over time, or it actually got worse over time. But um, specifically 2020 when it was just, you know, a lot of talk of like Chris Room's going to win the Tour de France. And it's like, he's not like, he's not going to win. Like if you're pay attention to the facts, you would see that this is not a possibility. And that's kind of what pushed me over the edge and, and got me to do the newsletter. 
Do you, do you think that that uh, bias was a lack of effort on the part of the reporters and the media covering it? Or was there, what, what do you think would I cause think that sort of just, oh, go with the flow there. Everybody's talking about Chris Room. Just say that. I think it's two main things. I think, first of all, like the scope of responsibilities that a lot of these websites is so big. You just don't have time. Like these, a lot of these major sites probably aren't even watching the races, let alone even watching them closely. And then Monday rolls around and they have to say something. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these people live like normal lives. Like they're not dedicating their weekend to watching cycling. Um, so, So you just get misinformed stuff and it's not all their fault. I mean, a lot of these major companies drifted a lot from just the original mission statement of pro cycling. It was more of like a lifestyle or or tech coverage. And then also I, I know this, I know this was pushed when I worked at a bigger site that they just wanted to shape the storyline to drive traffic. So if Chris room's going to win the tour, more people are going to read that story, um, which isn't their fault. If, If you're an ad driven site, you, you know, you can make more money doing something like that versus more like boring, factual, stati- statistical based analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I went with the the subscription model where you can kind of pay for something that might not be as sexy that could drive clicks. Just tell us about how the structure. So how many times a week do you do the newsletter and what does it cost to subscribe? So I it comes out if you there's a free edition, it comes out once a week. So if you don't want to pay anything, um, you can sign up and you get one free one at minimum per week. Um, paying subscribers get daily newsletters during grand tours and during non-grand tours weeks, it's three times per week. So, and I'll always cover a major race, you know, like a monument, um, any type of significant one day race, small yeah. week long races. Um, okay. And it's $7 a month or $70 a year. Um, I like that I kind of have the, the dual model and I think it works really well. How long does, I mean, I've been reading your newsletters um, for, for a few weeks now. And sorry about if you can hear that in the background, that's my cat who shares my garage workspace with me sometimes. <laughs> he just came out to use the litter box. And when he does it, he likes to meow afterwards, some kind of an announcement or something like, so bear with me. That the cat's going to be a hit. The cat's going to be a celebrity. That'll disappear. He will. Maybe I'll bring him. Maybe I'll bring him over. Popeye, come here. Hang on. Watch this. Okay. And... Here we go. Oh, yeah, that's a good This is Popeye. He's been around for about 16, 17 years. Sorry, back to my my question. So I've been reading the newsletter now for a few months and and really enjoying it. But when I I read this thing, you know, you've got 10 takeaways from these events, and and there's a lot of material that you put in there. You sort of a race summary, and then you kind of get down to your takeaways. And I'm thinking to myself, man, how long does it take you to write one of these things? Yeah, I was, as someone asked me this earlier today, um, the short answer would be if I give myself like a two hour timer, I can do it in two hours. Um, But the part that's not, you know, it's like after a tour stage, I'll often like go for a ride and like, I'm thinking about this thing 24 seven, you know, it's like, yeah, work is kind of like spinning upstairs and then I'll put it together when I sit down. But um, short answer, I like to do it in two to four hours. Long answer. 24 hours a day <laughs> I'm, I'm working like i'm waking up during race season thinking about like okay like how's it going to play out today and what yeah. am i gonna what you know how's that gonna affect my analysis 
Do you ever have particular storylines that you follow or that may guide some of your, you know, just the, the ahead of time that you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm thinking about this or this, this is something I got to watch. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of stuff, it's kind of the, it sounds crazy because there's so many additions that you think, how could anything get left on the cutting room floor? But a lot of stuff just never makes it out. I just have like an internal notebook um, of just constant storylines I'm following that I maybe even never even talk about in the newsletter because I just think it bloats it too much. So, um, and, and I do do a, a weekly podcast where I try to maybe go over some of the stuff that I just couldn't fit in the newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do have like, a lot of times I'll be thinking like if, you know, if, if Pogacar cannot lose time on today's stage, like he's probably got this in the bag. So, and then I'll be watching that as the race goes on. Do you have access to, to the riders or the teams or anything like that, that may in some way even influence your coverage? Um, I do have riders. I will speak to kind of on background, um, but a lot of times they're busy racing, you know, I'm very race focused. So the majority of my content comes out during the races. Um, the riders probably don't have a ton of time, but I, a lot of team managers are, are subscribers and they'll, <laughs> they'll let me know if they disagree with something I said, or they think I need more information about a topic. And the same thing with writer agents, where I definitely know quite a few are subscribers and I'll, I'll get an earful as soon as I send something out, if they want to add more information to that. Right. Well, I, I like the fact with your, with your newsletter that you are, um, it's largely armchair based where you're, you're watching this stuff unfold and then you're offering your, your opinion and your analysis of what's going on without it being influenced by an agenda from the teams or the riders or the organizers or the race, the companies that own the races or any of that stuff. And it's, it makes it, you know, I think it makes it, it's really refreshing um, coverage style because we don't see a lot of that, especially, you know, on, on, on my side of things where we're, we're following racing and stuff. And there's always this challenge to, uh, you don't want to piss too many people off by saying yeah. the wrong thing. Cause I need those ad dollars or something like that. But have you thought about the idea of beyond the Peloton getting to a scale large enough where you may be influenced by things other than just your own editorial integrity and curiosity? It's definitely something I think about and worry about, um, I think potential protection against that model is that the bulk, I I believe the bulk of my revenue will always be derived from subscribers. So it's kind of power numbers where, you know, if Shimano gets mad at me because I think that their 12 speed drivetrain is causing more failures during races, uh, they have less power to just pull ads from my site, which would be a big fear if if you're an ad-based site. Um, I, I would have a hard time in that position knowing what to do. Um, well, I mean, I do, I, I've found out like quite a few famous people in the sport read it, which does like just internally make it difficult where I'm like, do I really want to say this? Um, and this person's going to read it, but I think you just kind of have to keep, you know, you have to stay true to yourself because that's why people were interested in you in the first place. Yeah. You know what? I think that is a really good point is, um, the reason people are paying attention is because you're saying something that not everyone else is saying, or, you are, you know, there's a certain feeling of um, 
having a conversation with somebody that you went on a ride. Say you're out on a ride with your buddies or some guys and you're talking about something and people aren't too worried about what they're going to say. They don't filter too much. They just say stuff and you have these conversations that are interesting and, and they may or may not be based on fact, but the opinions and exchanging opinions is always fun and entertaining. And that's kind of what I think we've done at Pez is we've offered up our own opinions and people can like them or, or flush them as they see fit. But and I, I, I've been watching racing for, you know, 30, 40 years now. And, I'm, and I got more interested in race coverage when I started reading your newsletter, because it took me just deeper into the racing than I could get from a regular race report. Well, that's very nice of you to say, and that's high praise. And it is something I try to do is to, it's a hard line to walk. I'm sure you guys deal with this, um, where it's like, how do you appeal to someone who's just getting into the sport? And it might not know who like Greg LeMond is versus someone like yourself who's been following the sport for so long. And how can you offer something interesting to both of those people? Hmm. So I, I try to make it in-depth enough that someone like you, who has a grand knowledge of cycling, can enjoy it while also being, you know, not so dense that that someone who's just picking up cycling could come in and be like, I want to learn more about this sport hmm. and, and can enjoy it. So that's a big challenge that. I face, I'm sure everybody faces, but something I'm thinking about all the time. Yeah. You know what? That just gave, gave me thought to another interesting question is, you know, we both have lived through the rise of the popularity of cycling in North America, thanks largely to Lance Armstrong. And he was, uh, you know, as a, a very uh, magnetic figure and everybody wanted to watch him and he was kicking ass at the tour de France and beating everybody all the time. And it was, he was just a great American sports hero for a period of time. Um, what, what now, and, and when Lance was, was big, there was a wave of popularity of cycling that everybody was riding and, and making money off of, including Pez, because more people were interested in what they wanted to watch cycling because Lance was in it. And so all we had to do was start covering it and people were paying attention. Brands flourished because more people wanted to start riding their bikes all because of this one guy. So Lance isn't in the sport anymore. He affected, you know, arguably had a very negative impact on the sport when he came down. What about the current crop of American riders? So we, there isn't anybody on the landscape who, in fact, even you could argue that pro cycling does not have a figure in pro cycling that was as dominant and as big and flamboyant as a lance. So where do, where does that leave us? What, what do you think about the current state of personalities in cycling? That's a good question. I even, yeah, even the major Lance, I mean, I think we have to accept Lance was potentially a one of the, like a one of the kind, like a black swan event where he was just, he's a magnetic person. He's very charismatic. Um, he's good at expressing you know, cycling in an interesting way, which most people aren't. He also had cancer, which, um, and then came back from it and then won the tour. That's just a pretty interesting story. If, if you didn't know about it and I just told you that story, you'd say, that's pretty interesting. I'd like to hear more. Yeah. Um, that's not going to happen again, but it is concerning to me that I, I guess I find it interesting. Even the big, big stars like Julian Alaphilippe is a fairly niche star or even Peter Sagan, who is really charismatic, like really you know, famous in cycling, he's not that well known outside of cycling. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to, and he's about as interesting a character as, as you possibly can be while still like operating in society. Mm -hmm. And 
he, I think it's maybe just we're seeing the fact that there, it, with F1, there's F1. F1 is a company that owns the sport of F1, and they can deploy marketing assets in a strategic way. Cycling is just kind of a collection of old families that own races. It's not an ideal way. You would not set a business up this way. I think that holds a lot of it back. There's no centralized marketing agency who can kind of polish all these all this raw data and all these interviews and, and make it into some type of compelling personality soup, basically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Or there's the soup, there's no bowl. But, you know, it's, that's one thing that's I think is really interesting about pro cycling. I've always, I was always attracted to it was the international aspect. So you would have all these different nationalities of guys meeting on the playing surface, duking it out at the same time. So you've got all these interesting um, cultures and languages and guys not understanding each other necessarily because they didn't come from the same place. Um, There is no other sport where on the playing field of any one event, you have all of these nationalities and players battling at the same time. Yeah, the internationality is so interesting. And I do think it uh, maybe part of the disconnect is uh, like, let's say you're a very good American or you're a Canadian. You probably have to join a foreign team, like a European based team. Um, You just have to be very good for that team because that team is eating your contract because there's no Yumbo supermarkets in Canada or the US. Um, They're wasting a spot by sponsoring a North American rider. Yeah. We, can, we can literally cannot go buy their products. Yeah. Um, so you have to be that good just to make it. And then once you're on a European team, I think you're slightly invisible to the North, the North American media. Like um, if you're on EF, you get a lot more attention than if you're on Yumbo. Yeah. So, and we're seeing like Brandon McNulty on, he's on UAE, very good rider. I, I think actually one of the best American riders in a long time, mm-hmm. basically invisible to anyone, but the biggest fans of the sport. So mm-hmm. And I I think, I mean, you're having like, there's this Canadian businessman running around right now, literally trying to hand someone money to sponsor a team and they won't take it. If there was a more defined way to get into the sport for for major North American business people to get into the sport, you could see a lot more cultivating of of North American personalities. All right. Well, that is, that's going to bring our show to a close, but obviously we are not finished talking about any of this stuff because the sport goes on and we've got things to say about it. So um, Spencer, thanks for joining us. Um, just can you remind viewers where they can find you and how they can uh, subscribe to your newsletter? Yeah, you can find the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com and feel free to become a free non-paying member. That is more than welcome. Um, but if you really want to dive in deep, I do recommend that uh, additional membership. Seven bucks a month, man. That is, that's a, a, that's a great deal. You can't go wrong for that. It's like the price of two coffees. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Or one expensive coffee in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. So I'll put a link to uh, beyond the Peloton down in the below in the description of this video and uh, keep your eye on Pez and also um, the podcast. Where can people find your podcast? Um, you can find it anywhere podcasts are sold or given away. Um, it's called Beyond the Peloton Podcast, Spotify, Apple, Overcast, Pocket Cast. Um, just search for Beyond the Peloton Podcast and it will show up. Fantastic. All right. Okay, Spencer, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. And I'll be, I'll be reading you even sooner. 
(laughs) Thanks, thanks, Richard. And I look forward to being on. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Next week, I will be digging into the BTP net ratings per teams, which I did last year's offseason. I will be rating my ratings to see what I got wrong and what I got right. So please tune in for that and have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Bye.